This podcast is proudly brought to you by Infinity Media, incubating innovative businesses in the media industry. Hi, I'm Gordon Muller. I'm the guru in the Doc and Guru podcast. Thanks for being with us. For those of you who don't know me, I've spent over 40 years in the media industry in South Africa and uh, pretty much made it my home, my life, my passion. I have other passions, unfortunately, for my sins. I'm an Arsenal supporter and a Shark supporter, so we're going to do pretty much everything on the show as it pertains to media, marketing and money, but we don't take jokes about Arsenal or the Sharks. I'm Doug Mateus, uh, the doc on the show. Uh, and again, for those of you who don't know me, I've uh, spent 30 years in, in uh, various companies in South Africa uh, running uh, different marketing functions. And the last job I had, I was privileged in, uh, enough to work with a team that took uh, the brand to the fastest growing brand in South Africa in 2018 with a 47% year-on-year growth. So that was a, a great achievement uh, for the team and, and, and I'm really proud of that. Uh, from a personal point of view, I do a little bit of cycling uh, and also snow skiing. So we quite enjoy that. But again, uh, today's discussion is around all things marketing and media. Yep, that's right, Doc. All things marketing and media. No subject too big, no topic too small, no subject too hot to handle. Please get in touch with us on our Facebook page, follow us, like us, whatever it takes. We would love you to be involved with the show and uh, we really want to make it as inclusive and as energetic as I know this industry is capable of. Morning, Doug. How are you doing? Yes, uh, Gordon, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, all right, Doug. I was to say, um, you, you have a delicious scent about you today. I mean, obviously, <laughs> that session with uh, Beverly Gardner yeah. has uh, resonated with you. Well, Delightful. I, I uh, thought I'd go and uh, you know, dust off some of the, <laughs> the bottles in my cabinet. Excellent. And uh, now there you go, you see. Nice well, there you go. Speaking <laughs> of young and fresh and invigorating, this morning we have got with us Jason Funneberg, who is one of our media exports, um, has spent his formative years uh, in media in South Africa and is now um, flying the South African flag, so to speak, in Germany. So, Jason, great to have uh, you with us today, all the way from uh, from Germany. Yeah, thanks, gents. I, I appreciate you having me on the show. Jason, um, yeah, yeah. How's it, Jason? Doug, yeah. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, very good, Doug. Nice to nice to hear you again. Yeah, absolutely, man. So, uh, again, as Gordon said, thanks very much for taking the time, and we're going to chat. And Gordon, just uh, in case. You'd forgotten or didn't know this. I mean, Jason's a, a young scholar of yours and a student of yours many years ago, 2005. You studied your media planning arts and science book. I'm just reading it now. So uh, <laughs> see, what it's, see what a good book you wrote. Yeah. Where ended up now. Well, I mean, uh, I do remember it was a crop of really good young people that came in. So uh, it's really it's exciting to see that people like Jason have stayed in the industry. Yes, we've lost the asset in South Africa, but at least they've stayed in. Jason, I mean, just off the top of your head, how many of your colleagues have bailed out of the media industry that you can sort of recall off the top of your head? Um, yeah, I'd say probably more than 75% from when I started um, have, have definitely moved to different parts of the industry or, or different roles within, you know, on the client side or, you know, going into totally different industries altogether. But um, now I guess, you know, when, when I started back in 2005, it was... Uh, 
you starting as a little intern as a uh, as a media buyer i kind of worked through the different de- departments of of the media of the media industry you know starting out as a buyer working through a planner becoming a strategist into account management so i think i really had a good base in terms of you know how everything works within an agency and then you know working for you know a few agencies in, in south africa i had a, got a really good opportunity to work on a global team um in 2014 in berlin so i i took that opportunity and i was really thrust into the then new world of programmatic solutions and trade desk and ad tech that i knew very little about um so it was a steep learning curve jumping onto that um all all while you know especially when it comes to global teams you know you you got to manage 50 different markets and and making sure that they that they reach their their global commitments that they, that we've made to clients yeah i think balancing the books is is always tough and uh um, just as a matter of interest, you know, how do, how do you communicate there? Um, do, have you mastered the German language? Do you speak German or how do you, was English the sort of lingua franca, if you pardon the expression? Yeah, English is definitely the, the, the spoken language from a global perspective. You know, I think Germany is the only place that I've, I, that I've been to where if you're the only English speaking person in the room, everybody turns to English. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite a, a unique place to live and uh, I'm quite fortunate that it, that it is like that because obviously if the tables are turned we'd be in a bit of trouble um you know i i, I guess you know when, when, when you look at how we've com- communicated with different markets across the world that's also been a lot easier now you know, post-covid where, where you know things like zoom and and microsoft teams have taken over so it's definitely become a bit easier but i guess you know if i if i relate that back to you know what the differences between a global and a local team i think you know we, we have to talk about what the global team's responsibilities are and um you know i, I think there's three major aspects that a global team kind of does that differ from a local team i think the first role as you as, as you said just now is is coordination and um, you know, coordinating across the different markets and and making sure that the global the global clients get what they need to be able to drive um, their their global agenda. Um, it, it's it's probably the hardest part about working in a global team because generally speaking, you do become the hardest part about working on that particular account um, where you're doubling up doubling up the local team's work. So normally, you know, if it's if it's a local client uh, working for a media agency, you're generally working with that local client and their local needs. Um, you know, and, and you know, Doug, Doug was my first client, and he knows that he was quite a demanding guy. So, you know, all of a sudden, you put on top of that um, a global team asking for the same work in a different format. It really doubles up on everything that you're doing. Yeah. So, Doug, I mean, he he did something right. I mean, we're going to come back to it in the moment. I just want to say that I'm really relieved that there's a South African, you know, somewhere in in Europe reporting because. One of your frustrations, being the local guy here, is the European perception that, other than North America, anything outside of Europe, just ask the guys in South Africa, and they will give you the, the numbers. I mean, I was once asked, you know, to provide, you know, the state of play on Cyprus, and I responded by sending a map of the world, <laughs> highlighting where Paris was and where Cyprus was, and suggesting that it, they might do better. To communicate, you know, where they are, then asking us via Johannesburg what's going on in Cyprus. So, what did what did this young guy do right, uh, Doug, from from a client perspective? What do you look for when you get young talent on your business? Yeah, I think for me, Gordon, uh, it was it was enthusiasm and and the willingness to learn. You know, Jason, I think was always a high energy guy from that time, uh, and and that was at Starcom so years ago, and so it was great. And and I'm so pleased, Jason, to see that you've done so so well, not just. 
you know, on uh, in agencies in Europe, but also at clients. I mean, you spent some time, I remember bumping to you about two years ago, I think it was at the Heineken uh, building in Amsterdam. Ironically, Gordon, how, how weird is the world? I was getting in the lift and, and Gordon, uh, Jason was coming out of the lift to have his lunch or something. So it was, it was yeah. quite weird. And it was, uh, so just t- tell us a little bit about the difference between, you know, working in an agency and versus working at a client uh, in, in Europe. Well, I mean, look, you know, I was I was also on the agency side back then, but that that also leads to you know being on a global team where you you kind of sit in that gray area between the client and the agency. Um, you know, you, you're sitting in on all the briefings, you're sitting in on all the 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 actual you know planning that goes into it because you're an integral part of it. Um, you, you know, when we when we talk about strategy, you know, putting a global strategy together, the more detailed you have to put it together, the less relevant it becomes on a local market. So you have to find that that very fine line that keeps it relevant on local markets and, and be more of an inspirational piece to get local markets to work to a certain standard. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, you're using that global strategy to sell your idea for your budgets and, you know, the, 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 the actual strategy of what you're trying to build it from a, from a, from a global perspective. So it's always a, a, a very strong, like, you know, intertwined, you know, version when it, when it comes to a global perspective, you're definitely closer to the agencies. Um, in terms of how you want to do it. Also, agencies tend to have a better way to communicate with the different markets. Um, you find that the, the channels of communication are very clear um, and, and, and easier to do as opposed to if you go from client to local to agency, you tend to find that that does create a little bit of broken telephone effect that we, that we sometimes have. Yeah, look, just coming back to the, the global you know, kind of local thing, I mean, every market has, it, has its nuances. Um, one of my pet bugbears out here is the uh, continued use of uh, of English as, as as the primary vehicle for communication here in a, in a country where we've got eleven official languages. Um, so I find myself often in the remarkable position of sitting with clients trying to convince them that it would be in their best interest to communicate in in Zulu to Zulu speaking you know South Africans or Afrikaans to Afrikaans speaking South Africans do you have any problems trying to convince Germans to create ads in in, uh, in German or do they just make everything in English like like we do here uh, generally speaking the presentations are all in English um, but you know the conversation carries on in German uh, so you know, if, if I look at the German landscape, it, it, it is obviously, a, you know, from a media perspective, it is different to, to that of South Africa, where, where Germany is very traditional. And I'm talking, you know, print is still a dominant force within Germany. In fact, I saw an article the other day where the Spiegel, which is one of their, their, their main publications, had dropped by 2% against people under the age of 25. And they had said that it, it was the death of print. So <laughs> you, you, you can tell that it's a, it's a little bit different yeah. in terms of, you know, the rest of the world where... where where the, especially from a media perspective, it's, it's moving very much in a digital, digital direction. Yeah, which then poses the question, uh, and before I get to that, actually, I, I need to just pose a, uh, something to you as well. Do you by any chance have, have pets, dogs? Because I'd note with great interest that the German state is now going to decree it's going to be compulsory to walk your dog twice a day. Um, <laughs> Which I think is the kind of social intervention which is really, really encouraging to see governments involving themselves in big issues. So will you be walking your dog twice a day as prescribed by German law? I, I don't have a dog yet, but we're planning on getting one. So yes, it, it will be it will be part of the plan. Okay, right. So now we go back to the the primary question was the textbook I you know I wrote I called 
media planning, art or science. We can debate whether media planning exists at all. But if I was going to call it uh, by a new title, I'd call it media planning, art or artificial intelligence. So mm-hmm. as you sit there now, how much planning goes on as you and I would have understood it you know, 15 years ago? And how much of it is just collating big data and, and turning it into interesting looking graphs? Sure. Um, so, so I think it's safe to say that the media principles, regardless of what market you're in, um, remain the same. You know, we, we always use the currency of reach. And, you know, when it comes to reach, there are different mediums that will always be able to, 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 to get that from a, from a strategic perspective. I think where it's changed is that in, in, you know, when I left South Africa, digital wasn't always associated with reach when you're talking about a campaign. These days, when, you, when you're talking about reach, digital plays a very big part of role, a very big role within that. Um, and, you know, what global teams tend to, well, what, what we do from a global perspective also tends to lead in that because, you know, the, the, the currency that you can use from digital remains the same. The tools that we use are similar in all of the markets, whether it's Facebook Business Manager, Google AdWords, um, Google Analytics, they, they all keep the same. So people tend to, to move in that direction. The other thing is, I guess, with media plans becoming more, you know, accountability becoming a bigger part of what we're trying to do across the way, Digital is the easy win um, in terms of, of showing what you've done and how you've achieved it because it's very measurable, um, and, and that's always been the case. But again, you know, with with what we're trying to do, um, you know, from a global perspective, the, the the global teams also account for you know, want accountability from what we're doing from a TV audit perspective and from a digital audit perspective. It's very difficult to do that across other other mediums, so they tend to lead on that. Um, and I, I do believe that we're still very much within the, the digital revolution. I know that's an old buzzword, but you know, in the last three years, 20, uh, digital ad investment has increased by 28% globally. Yes, obviously that's driven by markets like the US and China, but it, it, does, it does show that, that we're definitely into a stage where digital ad spend is becoming almost 40% of the total channel mix that we're trying to use. Um, and part of that is, is, is what I like to call the pink dress syndrome. And that's, that's really, you know, there are clients out there that know what they want to do from a digital perspective. And there are clients that don't necessarily know what they, what they want to do. They just want to have a pink dress because somebody else has got one. Um, and, and sometimes they miss the opportunity to, to, to do it correctly. And, and, and they, they invest a lot in ad, in ad spend to get to drive people to their website or to their own platform, but they don't always get the results that they look for because they haven't invested what they needed to do on their website. So that's that's learning a learning curve for everybody. And I, I do see a, a global trend where the, the digital investment has grown exponentially on certain clients, but then they've realized there is still a space for traditional media, like media channels like TV and radio. So they've reached an equilibrium where they want to carry on with their digital investment. They're finding efficiencies in that and reinvesting that budget back into, into traditional channels. Doc, have you... you- Got strong views on on wearing a pink dress? <laughs> <laughs> no, Gordon. I mean, following <laughs> our previous uh, week with uh, with Beverly, we must uh, look at new I'm things. Just you know gonna, I mean? Given no, this well, new fragrance sure that's wafting up, through the oh, studio, a yeah. pink shirt maybe a pink, pink golf, shirt. Okay, fair golf enough. Shirt salmon. We, salmon. Uh, I'll wear it for pink pink day at the cricket. That's salmon is the word you're looking salmon for. Is salmon. Men <laughs> wear salmon colored shirts, not a pink shirt. Now, uh, Jason, just, you know, it's quite interesting. A few weeks back, Gordon and I uh, were chatting about skills and and clients and, and agencies knowing what they want to do. So in a, in a strange, bizarre way, I mean, what you're saying to me is in, in sort of 
very sophisticated markets. People are trying to just do a kind of a copycat and not always knowing, which doesn't it doesn't do well for the uh, the marketing fraternity, Gordon. You know, people must you must have an understanding, and we've been saying it for a while now. Upskill yourself. So, just listening to you, certainly in parts of Europe. Uh, that lack of knowledge perhaps permeates that market as well and people are just copying because it's the buzzword of the day. You're listening to The Dark and the Guru, proudly brought to you by Infinity Media. You know, a lot of people focus on the ad tech that needs to be put in place. Um, You know, like you said, we are living in a world of big data and, and Having big data is one thing, being able to, to data mine and get insights out of that is a totally different one. So, you know, the, the ad tech's coming in through and, and, you know, I think a lot of the, again, from a global perspective, because that's generally what we're speaking about, you know, it's, it's about getting everybody onto the same page, using the same data and the same metrics so that trends can be found. And I think that's really been the drive at the moment rather than the reason why they want to be doing that. Jason, let's just go back to the issue of accountability. Um, you know, how are you monitoring, you know, big data in terms of filtering out bots and, and just, you know, general fake audiences? I mean, you know, it's in South Africa, the exercises I've done working with, uh, you know, sort of data auditors, anything up to 20 and beyond percent of a, of a campaign um, can be clearly identifiable as, as, as fake audiences. How, how do you monitor that? I mean, we're all, in, you know, been inflating audiences for the last 50 years. That's, that's, you know, I think that's page 73 on my book, how to inflate the audience and get away with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, it, it, it's, it's not a unique problem to South Africa. I think they, it happens all across the world. But, you know, the tools are becoming better. Um, you know, you've, you've got tools like Moten, integral ad science that, that people use um, to try and talk about viewability. And they also filter out what which of those are a human, which of those are bots. So, you know, that is going into place. And again, driving impressions is one thing, getting click-throughs to another. Um, you know, once you get onto the website, there are a lot of first-party companies, um, like the one I work for now, um, you know, we, we really focus on, on identifying who are humans and who are not. So there are definitely different ways of, 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 of looking at those things, but it's not a perfect system right now. Yeah. Jason, just on uh, where you are now at Smart Digital, just talk a little bit about what do you actually do uh, and what is the unique benefit to the to the consumer from from your point? Sure. Um, well, you know, from a media perspective, especially from if we're talking digital, you know, generally speaking, our job is to, you know, as a media agency is to drive people to that particular platform, whether it be uh, the website or, um, you know, the social page or whatever they're trying to do. Um, what we do at Smart Digital is, is really about, you know, online personalization. And it's about taking, once we've got the clicks, making sure that user journey becomes easier and more intuitive to get to a final, get to that final stage. So, for example, if you go into a, you know, an automate, automate like a, a car website and you, you push in them to, to, to drive a lead, we're able to, to personalize the website in real time to make that journey a little bit more intuitive so it makes it look like you know exactly what you're doing to get to that final final destination and, and get those details in um if if you drop off what we do is we we collect those behavior-based type of audiences we drive that back to the, the media agency and from a retargeting perspective with cookies um we're, we're able to tell exactly who they are what they've done where they are in the consumer journey and then push a, a specific message to them when they come back, get them to the place that they need to be to take them to that final decision. So it, 
it's really about you know get, getting them to to make that final action as quickly as possible um, and, and efficiently as possible. Just talking about about cookies and retargeting. I mean, you know, retargeting is an incredibly effective way of getting a result. But on the <clears throat> on the issue of cookies, how, what's the state of play there in terms of uh, personal you know uh, protection of personal information, etc. We you know, are really seeing the demise, I think, in South Africa or the, the impending demise of cookies as, as a device for, re, for retargeting. What's the story over there? Um, look, cookie, cookie consent is, is something that we do as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's really about putting in place the, the legal forms to be able to make sure that when a consumer comes into the website, they know what they're being tracked with. Um, you know, generally speaking, we, we, we put on what we relate that back to the tools that we need to be able to 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 properly track what they do in a responsible manner, um, and there's different types of cookies. There's cookies that just run from long term to cookies that run from when you go onto a website. Um, if you put something into a basket, that cookie relates to what's in the basket. So, you know, it it is a very it's a very important part of what we do. And um, you know, with the rules coming in place, and even like you know, they say in in the, in the future. You know, a lot of the, the the web browsers are starting to ban cookies. So there's different types to to show whether you're being tracked or not, and um, you know what's going to be permitted or not. So it's important that companies get their cookie policies in place, um, especially dealing with markets in Europe where they're particularly tight about that. I mean, Doc. I mean, you were the king of Celsi back in the day. I mean, you sat on a mountain of incredibly valuable information. How did you find the sweet spot between? using it to the benefit of Celsi and protecting the interests of, of Celsi customers? A lot of the data, Gordon, was, was sort of aggregated data in that it, you, know, you didn't necessarily get the end users. We kept the end user data. So in other words, our subscriber data was ours. We never shared that with the agency, and the agency had aggregated data off, say, a web page or a website or, or whatever. And you try to find the, the spot between the two. But, I mean, like... I think you and I discussed it in a previous episode. I can't remember which one about that um, about the sensitivity and obviously the protection of of personal info. But yeah, you know, it's 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 trying to, I guess, overlay or layer levels of intelligence to try and get a better return for your marketing. That was the ultimate objective of the exercise. I don't I don't always think we did it that well, and, and I guess you know, in time, tools will get better and and people will get better at that. And I think you know, last week we spoke. Um, on the Onika social media report as well, it's all fine gathering info and having info. It's using that info correctly that is the challenge. You know, it's not a, it's not just about gathering, uh, gathering stuff for the sake of it. Yeah, and I think I'll, you've you've switched into a key point of the discussion, which I want to lobby Jason. Uh, looking at outcomes, you know, <clears throat> if we go back to my textbook, which was written the first edition in the eighties and then through the nineties, early, early noughties, um a lot of it was about the maximization of reach, how to optimize reach. Because if you think back to the dynamics of early advertising, you had two key components. You had Ross Reeves who invented this concept of front-of-mind awareness. We call it top-of-mind these days. And then you had Marshall McLuhan who said, you know, the medium is the message. So we concluded for a large chunk of the 70s, 80s, and 90s that it was all about if the medium is the message and it's all about top-of-mind or front-of-mind, just create massive exposure on television and you'll you'll get a result. But I think things have shifted. Now, Jason, swinging back to you, you were talking about reach, but if I look at attribution models, generally speaking, it's kind of ironic, seem to be working on gross impressions as a as the currency for, for attribution models. Is, are you working on reach these days or is it, is it all about uh, uh, gross impressions? Have we gone back to that basic? 
you know, when you talk about attribution modeling, I guess there are different versions of that as well, so where, where you move from, you know, last click to, as you say, like the, the gross impressions. So depending on what you're trying to look at, and I think Doug brought up a, a valid point earlier where, you know, a lot of clients don't necessarily share their first party data with the agencies and the agencies are using third party data. So you, you need to find a way to connect that and, um, and, 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 and complete that, that journey so that they're working together. And that's, that's a struggle, you know, and breaking down the silos that, that I think a lot of a lot of companies are trying to figure out how to do, um, because again, that that data that, that you do get from a first party perspective is very is is can be sensitive, but it can also help drive efficiencies in what you're trying to do from everything from reach to um, to to you know uh, finding high value high value users, and that's uh, that that's something that that we're all trying to find the answer to right now. You, in many respects, are, are, are living the dream. You know, you've, you've, you're in media, which in itself is a, is a really exciting place to be, and you're traveling the world and seeing the world. Looking back on some of the younger people now who have the same aspirations, what sort of advice would you give them? Um, you know, I would say global, going global <laughs> going global is fun. <laughs> it does give you a view on the world. It does show that you know, growing up in a country like South Africa does allow you to go into a global role quite easily because we have such a diverse market that we work within, whether it's income groups or, or, or different, uh, you know, different languages or, or, you know, different living standards that, that really drive, you know, a diverse way of thinking when it comes to, to, to planning. And, um, you know, from a global perspective, I'm going to say it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. It's a huge learning curve. When you go across, never underestimate the value of having a network. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is having you know, friends and family and work colleagues that you can lean on, where when you go to a global perspective, it's starting from scratch again. You know, you, you don't you don't have someone who who you can just turn around and say, look, this is what I want to do. Is this right or wrong? You know, yes, you've got the people in your team, but generally speaking, it's it's global teams are relatively small and normally work on work in, in, in their own silo. So um, there are challenges to that, but it does give you a very uh, I guess, overarching view of how different markets work. And you, you get to learn, especially from a strategic perspective, um, some very good techniques in, in terms of a, building your audiences, identifying segments, how to, how to build reach in different ways, innovative, innovation. Innovation is a key that, that drives, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of global strategies that, 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 that show success on a, on a global scale. Um, you, you're much closer to senior figures within the agencies and in clients you tend to work with the executive on most cases so generally speaking you, you you're in a position to to get your voice heard um and obviously that that drives a lot of confidence and confidence can take you quite far um especially if you're going from a global back down to a local level mm. one of the advantages i'm going to go back to to doc now as we as we start the wrap-up uh, of of being you know 10,000 miles away from home as nobody knows that you're a Blue Bulls fan apparently uh, <laughs> uh, there's a story attached to to that somewhere um, well, born in Polokwane you know I have to uh... <laughs> so it's a forced it's a forced thing no they, I understand and it that you, I do understand <laughs> no but you also you were at school victim uh, of your birth you were at school in yeah. Pretoria Jason so I mean uh, yeah, yeah. you know you got to you got to support the, the town Jason just one of the last points from our side and Gordon I know it's something that you've touched on as well and and um, the whole growing importance and, and I guess threat of, of consulting houses, traditional consulting houses, eating the lunch of, of agencies. Jason, do you want to expand a little bit on that, on the Accenture type model of, of the future? 
Yeah, well, we know that, that companies like, I mean, Censure is a, is a good example. They've, they've kind of closed down their auditing business purely to focus on, on, on consulting. And, um, you know, a lot of these consulting agencies, you know, whether, you know, in any of the big, the big agencies, they're, they're generally putting proposals forward to, to a lot of global clients. And, and they're taking the lead in terms of driving the overall marketing strategy. Um, you know, whichever global client you talk on, there's definitely a, an agency in that, and, and or a consultancy firm within that. And, and what's happening is the global media agencies are being turned into buying shops. Um, yes, we are on the ground, but at the same time, we have to take the we have to follow the lead of the consultancy agencies. And, and generally speaking, you know, agencies have always been fighting for for that commission and commission versus FTE argument has been going on and, and, and diminishing over the years where we're, we're getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because we have to keep the business. Um, but consultancies are, are still charging, you know, huge amounts of money to, to, to really drive what the agencies have the capabilities to do. Um, there's two parts to that. I, I guess one is, you know, the consultancies are starting to take talent out of the media agencies. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, with that, uh, we, we tend to lean back into what we know versus the consultancies putting forward new ideas. So it's, it's definitely, a, you know, at the moment, a, a very a tricky situation for, for a lot of the, the, the global agencies where we have to stick with that, but at the same time, stick with what the, the consultancy agencies are saying, but follow our buying parameters that we've promised, which sometimes doesn't always match up. Jason, if there are young folks who are listening in, um, you know, to the podcast, um, who who would maybe like to make contact with you? What's the best way to do that? Can they? Uh, uh, you give us a website yeah. uh, or uh, or an email address or something, or can we follow that? Can they pick you up on uh, on any other social media platforms? Yes, yes. As, as a millennial, I'm on all of the social media platforms. Um, it's just Jason Thunderberg. Um, on, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook. Um, and they can also reach me on jason.vdberg at smart-digital.de. That's great. Doc, leave it to you. Yeah, thanks, Gordon. Uh, Jason, thanks very much for your time. It's always nice to, to chat to you and, and nice to see a, a young guy making a big success. Jason, just in closing, besides Berlin and when I bumped into you in Amsterdam, did you also spend some time in London or, or where else did you go in Europe? I, I tried to avoid London because uh, no one really likes the British. Uh, <laughs> all those Arsenal supporters, you know. They, yeah, we go. They see. <laughs> um, no, no. I, I've always wanted to be on on uh, in, a, in a different environment to London. So yeah. I, I I could have gone. There were opportunities there, but um, you know, from a variety of reasons, from uh, love to uh, beer, I decided to stay. In <laughs> Much smarter. Well, see, sneaking in the little Arsenal comment there, I would also like to point out that it is, in fact, Bayern Munich who, who won the European <clears throat> trophy this year, not uh, the football side from But Does Berlin even have a, a football team? Uh, they do. They've got two. They've really? Got two. They've got Her Hertha Berlin and, and Union Berlin. That's me, <laughs> naught out of two. Who would have thought? Uh? Yeah, I'm a big Union fan. <laughs> the real footballers. Jason, thanks again from my side. And, and again, just in closing, uh, to people listening out there, get involved in the conversation, be part of it, uh, get hold of either Gordon or myself, get hold of Jason. Um, and to South Africans, you can do it. You know, here's an example of a guy, uh, did his schooling in Pretoria, worked his way through the ranks here, uh, studied hard. And Jason, from my side, all the best for the future. We really do thank you for your time. Yeah, Jason, great, to, great to hear you and, uh, and congratulations and keep flying the flag. 
Thanks, Gordon. Thanks, Doug. I really appreciate the time. Ciao. Thanks. Cheers. And so that was another episode of The Doc and the Guru. Please don't uh, forget to get a hold of us on Facebook, like us, follow us, uh, subscribe to the podcast. And then from my side, you can get a hold of me on LinkedIn, Dr. Doug Mataz. I'm uh, very active and very keen to hear about your views uh, and certainly will respond. And hopefully we can bring that into the show. Thanks, Doc. And it's uh, Gordon Miller, the guru, signing off. Thank you for being with us and listening into this podcast today. You can pick up the discussion with me on my Twitter handle, at Mzanzi Media. And I'd love to engage with you on any of the issues that we've taken on in the show. And take us at our word. This is really going to be an open forum. There are no subjects that are taboo. And we'd love to have some of the younger, more under-listened, if that's the correct phrase, uh, voices to join us uh, in this discussion. Thanks for your time. The Dark and the Guru, proudly brought to you by Infinity Media, incubating innovative businesses in the media industry.